afternoon and welcome to Bold Leaders in Learning. I'm Brandon Busteed and am delighted to have what I'm sure will be a really fun conversation with Ryan Craig, Managing Director of University Ventures. Uh, I think I read everything that Ryan writes uh, and he and I are always, uh, I would say, uh, almost always on the same page. I'm sure we've, we've had something we've disagreed about, but for the most part, um, I'm a huge fan of Ryan's work and uh, I'm delighted to have him on the show. So Ryan, tell us, tell us a little bit about your background and, and university ventures. Thanks for being yeah. on the show. Uh, thanks, Brandon. Appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here. Uh, so uh, yeah, I've been in higher education now for 22 years, um, a long time. Started my career at Columbia University back in the 90s, uh, helping Columbia figure out what to do with this new thing called the internet. <laughs> And I was sort of there at the dawn of online uh, education, uh, helped uh, create one of the large uh, uh, for-profit online universities, uh, Bridgepoint Education, now now Zovio. Uh, worked at Warburg Pincus uh, for a number of years, the private equity firm. That's where I started my investment career. And then I've uh, launched uh, uh, and now invested in uh, dozens of uh, higher education uh, businesses in 2011, uh, with Daniel Pianco, uh, I founded University Ventures, uh, a firm focused on trying to establish the next generation of higher education uh, businesses, kind of beyond the for-profit college model. And we've done that successfully now for uh, eight years. And uh, a couple of years in, we began uh, focusing on uh, the economic numbers we were seeing coming out of the Great Recession and looking at uh, how millennials were doing. Uh, in terms of income, in terms of wealth, uh, in terms of home ownership, in terms of new business creation, and determined that uh, employment uh, and employability was really becoming uh, the lodestar uh, around which uh, higher education needed uh, to organize. Uh, and it, it wasn't uh, sufficiently. So we pivoted uh, our activities to focusing on that. Uh, and I think that's where uh, you and I are in violent agreement <laughs> on a lot of things. Uh, the need uh, for uh, uh, higher traditional higher education, which you know, if you look at the total dollars uh, being spent uh, on human capital development post high school, uh, something like ninety percent of it flows through traditional higher education uh, institutions. You know, only a fraction of that goes through things like workforce uh, workforce programs and the and the like. So these these institutions, four year and two year uh, colleges, uh, really uh, you know have a responsibility uh, uh, to uh, to the American people and and the economy uh, to make sure that they are uh, preparing uh, the workforce uh, that American employers are, are seeking. And increasingly, uh, what we've seen uh, is a, 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 a huge a, 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 a growing disjunction uh, between the the two. And I want to say that it's not because uh, higher ed has been moving in the wrong direction. Uh, they haven't been moving at all. <laughs> That's the problem. The problem is that the world of work uh, and especially the hiring process itself uh, have become uh, so much more digital uh, than they were even a decade ago uh, that, uh, that, that, that that gap uh, is now obvious to uh, everyone and higher education is, is uh, uh, trying to play catch up, at least it's at some uh, institutions. So that's sort of where, uh, where, where we're, we're focused. Yeah. And, and, you know, to just put a fine point on several of those, uh, those, those things you just mentioned, you know, this goes back to a lot of the Gallup research that I was involved with, you know, the number one reason why Americans value higher education is to get a good job. 
And I'm always quick to point out that it's not the only reason why we value it, right? But it is by far the number one reason. And yet most higher ed education institutions haven't really, you know, wrapped their, their, you know, their, their, their heads around that. And then obviously the kinds of things they're doing from a pedagogical or programmatic standpoint. The other thing I've been worried about is that if you look at today's 18 to 24 year olds, the traditional age college student population, they're the least working generation in US history. That is over the last six decades that we have data, they're the least likely to have reported working at all in any form. And so, you know, you, you say, well, how do, we get, how do we get people work ready if higher ed is not moving, right? And not really fully preparing them. Uh, and then if this generation just, you know, for, for various reasons has, has worked uh, very little in that process. You know, part of the answer is is how do we improve higher ed? Part of the answer, obviously, is what happens around higher ed. I might. I know we're going to talk about both, but I might have. I, to I, 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 I just want to ask yeah. a, to tell a quick story about that. So I was a, yeah. I was speaking at a conference in Boston last year, and uh, this uh, the, 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 this woman in the audience raises her hand and says, "You know, I'm an employer, uh, and I cannot find you know work ready uh, uh, graduates." <laughs> And I said, well, you're not the first one to say that. You know, what what is your business? And she's like, I operate travel study programs for high school and college students. And I say, well, look in the mirror, lady, <laughs> because you're 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 part of the problem uh, here. The problem is that uh, parents are pushing uh, their children to participate in these, you know, travel study and internship and volunteer for the purpose of burnishing their resumes to try to look better on a college application as opposed to doing the jobs that I, I know I did. I mean, I sound like a cranky old man. I, you know, walked uphill both ways to school. But, yeah. uh, you know, my first job, and when I was 15, I was scooping ice cream and then working as a busboy uh, in a restaurant. And you learn some real skills uh, doing that. But, uh, you know, the, the perception is that those skills are not valued uh, on a, a college uh, application. And as college is the soul, viewed by most families, uh, the vast majority of families, as the, the sole pathway uh, to economic mobility in this country, yeah. then yeah. there's no point uh, to doing that. But as, as, as you rightly point out, there's a huge cost, huge cost to doing that. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, the, the degree to which we have devalued from the lens of like, you know, career success, right? Long-term career and life success, we've, we've devalued. And I think about this at the parental level, we've devalued work experience in favor of, and, and by the way, I've heard many well-meaning parents say this to their children, you know, Johnny, Kelly, I want you to focus on your grades, right? Because if you don't get good grades and good test scores, you're not going to get into good college. And so they actually even, you know, they discourage them from working because they yeah. want their job to be academic performance, right? And so th there's a lot going on there, but that attitude is a is a pretty prevalent one among very well-intentioned parents trying to help. Well, it may be mo a moot point now because those jobs probably don't exist <laughs> right now. Anyway, but they're going to, they'll come back. Uh, and uh, yeah, I would very much like to see uh, a, uh, a youth population that uh, engages in paid, paid work more than ever. I said, you know, you cited your, your point up front about uh, it, it's about, it's about employment. You know, folks are making post-secondary decisions based on uh, employment, all, you know, except for those of the very, you know, top uh, uh, echelon of income. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're doing that uh, uh, in, in part because as, I, as, as, as I've written, they have this uh, anxiety about work. They've never actually right. demonstrated to their satisfaction that they can support themselves uh, through paid work. Uh, and so they, they, they reach senior year of college and it's like, oh my God, a job? 
how do you apply for a job? What's a, what's a job interview? You know, like it's all completely new to them. So that, that anxiety, I think, is filtering down. We would, would do a lot better uh, to have a much higher participation rate in the labor force of, uh, of, of, of teenagers and young 20-somethings. Yeah, no, we certainly agree on that. And uh, we've got a question from Alex Hicks, who's on live. Uh, thanks for joining, Alex, which is essentially the segue that I was going to ask you to talk about you know, the question is, should we improve higher education or do we support development of alternative pathways to employment? And I'd like to talk about both of those, right? Like maybe tell us first where you think higher ed is fundamentally broken down, right? And what would be a couple of the magic wands you'd wave to improve it rapidly, right? And then after we talk about that, I, want, I definitely want to segue to what the alternatives are, of course. Yeah, look, um, uh, nobody wants colleges and universities to go away and disappear. Uh, we would be a poor country, and there are frankly uh, cities and towns across the country who would who would dry up and die uh, if uh, if colleges weren't supporting their their local economy. So we need to make them uh, work both at the four year and especially at the two year uh, two year level. Uh, I think there are a number of things that uh, that the colleges and universities could could do uh, to help bridge that gap uh, between uh, what they do today and employment uh, and employability. Uh, for one, uh, you know, the federal work study uh, program, a $1.1 billion uh, federal program uh, that uh, funds uh, student work uh, while they're uh, in school. Uh, the way it's set up now, uh, it provides higher wage subsidies for placing students in on-campus custodial or food service positions than it does for actually uh, working uh, off-campus uh, for private sector employers, which presumably uh, would be more related to the career goals of the students. So the incentives there in work-study are completely wrong. Uh, yeah. I, think, I think we need to do a lot more to integrate real work uh, into course work. Uh, you know, not not everyone uh, is going to be able to develop a sort of northeastern uh, style, a northeastern university style co-op program. Uh, but there are these new marketplaces out there, like Ripen, uh, for example, R I I P E N, mm -hmm. that make it relatively straightforward for faculty to inter integrate uh, projects from real employers into coursework. Um, uh, meaning, so faculty can basically uh, uh, look, uh, dial up, and 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 find. Uh, a, a relevant project from a real employer uh, that they can essentially assign as a capstone project uh, in their in their course, where students will get real feedback uh, from a manager uh, at that employer. And I think that should be mandatory for a certain percentage of credit hours for uh, Title IV uh, institutions. I think we should uh, be turning degree programs uh, upside down, uh, meaning uh, restructure them so students are are getting an industry-recognized credential uh, in the first year. Uh, that would mean that you know the forty percent of uh, students who just you know aren't aren't completing in their first couple of years uh, and dropping out, uh, they're going to leave with something marketable uh, as opposed to nothing, uh, which is what they have uh, today. So BYU, Idaho has shown what's possible with their BYU Pathway Worldwide. Uh, program where they have online bachelor's degrees that begin with a five-course certificate program. Uh, and then after the first certificate, you complete a second certificate, and then you complete a third certificate in your uh, in, in the final half of your degree program. Yep. So you've got these marketable certificates. Uh, I, I think we should require colleges and universities to track employment outcomes. You know, you go to most colleges and universities and you ask them, you know, uh, how are your students doing after they graduate? And they'll give you some number like, 80% of last year's graduates were employed or in graduate school within six months. And that tells you absolutely nothing about whether they're in good jobs or right. whether they can afford to make their student loan payments. 
Um, and so, uh, you know, ideally we'd have a student unit record, um, which I know that, uh, Lamar Alexander has come out in favor of in Congress and hopefully that will break the Republican, uh, objection, uh, to, uh, to, to that. Uh, but in, in, in the absence of that, the onus should really be on colleges and universities to capture, uh, accurate employment information of the students whose money they've taken for four or five or six years. Uh, and I have an idea for doing that, uh, which is to utilize income share. Uh, agreements, uh, which require, as part of uh, as part of the contract, require students to report income uh, in the form of you know W twos or income tax filings for several several years in order to remain in, in compliance with the agreement. Uh, and so, e whether ISAs are utilized as a meaningful component of financial aid, or whether they're you know essentially a zero cost ISA, meaning you don't you don't pay anything as long as you remain in compliance, and if you fail to send us your income, then you're going to be on the hook for a penalty, uh, that could result in real tracking and reporting of uh, employment outcomes at an institutional level. And imagine how useful it would be to know that at the institution you're looking at enrolling uh, at for this particular program or for this particular demographic, here are the employment outcomes. I think we'd see a, a pretty yep. significant enrollment shift if we had that level of uh, employment reporting. So those are just a few ideas at the institutional level. Yeah, look, well, I, I would certainly uh, plus one each of those in terms of uh, my view of things as well. And, you know, you think about, you know, what's the magic wand I would wave, you know, for, for higher ed, it includes several of those things like, you know, graduation requirements would include things like several work integrated learning projects, right? And Ripen is a great example of that. Think about the cool stuff that Parker Dewey is doing with uh, micro internships, right? There's a lot of ways to do this short of a more intensive co-op program. But of course, I'm a huge fan of the co-op model, right? So universities that have pulled that off, you know, they're white hot brands right now between a Northeastern and a Drexel or a University of Waterloo in Canada, right? So, um, you know, it's, it's just interesting. so hard to do that. I mean, let's be, let's be yeah. realistic. I mean, think about how universities are set up an academic organization, how they interface with employers and who they actually even talk to at the employer. I mean, the hardest part of the skills gap that you and I are talking about to bridge is literally that connection with the employer. I can't tell you how many, you know, skills gap or workforce or future of work conferences I've been at where it's basically just a bunch of educators talking to each other because the employers aren't there because the employers are busy actually doing what they do. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the, the, the hardest part here is to figure out how to build a model that actually engages the employers in a meaningful and sustained way. And that's what we've been right. focused on as a firm. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of good examples of that short of, you know, the more intensive kind of co-op examples we've, um, by the way, we've got a lot of awesome questions, so I'm going to try and hit some of these, Ryan. Sure. Uh, call outs to folks who are joining with us. Uh, it's great to see Spencer Ingram and Cheryl Minnick and Rachel Sumner. Uh, this is a question from Larry Minetta, uh, the, the recently retired vice president of student affairs from oh, Duke sure. and one of my hey, yeah. <laughs> great friends and mentors. Uh, so he's, he's saying, assuming that alternative options will skim you know, a small percentage of the college age population, how can we break the impasse between higher ed and alternatives? Like, what agency should take ownership for bridging this divide? Is it accreditors? Is it associations like ACE? Uh, so I'm curious what, what you say to Larry's question. Well, I mean, we hope it's not ultimately a small percentage. I mean, we're, we, are focused, we're, we, are, we are focused on building pathways. In fact, uh, the new fund uh, that, uh, that, that we're working on, our goal over the life of the fund is to put 100,000 Americans into good jobs they wouldn't have been able to attain if not for the creation of these new pathways uh, that, we're, that we're building. So it's not small. Uh, and I do think that in a decade's time uh, that in every major market, 
there will be 10, 12, 20 uh, of these alternative pathways that are industry specific, uh, essentially, if you will, apprenticeship uh, programs or apprenticeship uh, models uh, that will be very attractive, uh, you know, uh, compared to uh, a, uh, an expensive, uh, non-selective uh, uh, university offering a degree program. So um, that's that's where we're where we're focused. Uh, you know, I do think though that uh, public uh, the governments, federal and, and state, uh, really have uh, responsibility to, to to look at the outcomes that we're achieving uh, from the you know over two hundred billion dollars that we're spending uh, on colleges and and universities uh, each year of public uh, of public money. Uh, I do think that particularly in this environment. Uh, most people would agree with the fact that funding formal education doesn't automatically lead to putting Americans uh, in jobs. Uh, and it, it, it's significantly easier to upskill someone uh, than to convince an employer to hire unproven talent, particularly in this economy, when the risk of hiring now and for the foreseeable future remains high. Uh, so I, I think uh, that we, we really need to begin thinking about uh, how to shift some of the spending that we're uh, currently allocating to uh, a formal education uh, to placement. Uh, I think employers should be incentivized to hire uh, by subsidizing wages uh, for a trial period uh, once yep. candidates are retained. And I think public, nonprofit, and private sector intermediaries with the potential to absorb risk from can both from candidates and from employers uh, by serving as the employer of record uh, for a trial period yep. during which uh, candidates would be upskilled, matched, and ultimately tried uh, by the end employer, they should be rewarded for achieving that, that, kind of, that kind of outcome. I think if we're serious about putting millions of Americans back to work, we really need to think about uh, spending, not just on education, uh, but on literally putting people uh, into, uh, into jobs. And I'm hopeful that we'll see some states and maybe even the federal government uh, act on that. Yeah, and in a way, you know, the, the 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 different ideas are where employers can become, you know, much more active in this, right? Uh, in a way, for higher ed, uh, I can see a model where employers become a new form of a creditor for higher ed. In other words, it might not be a degree program, but if that employer says, "Yeah, that fourteen-week program that you put together, university, got my employees through the CISSP exam for cybersecurity designation." I'll take it. I'll pay for it. I'll put people through it. You know, so that that would be an example of an employer validating a non-degree educational program, right? Like there's there's a lot of models like that, and and including, you know, this is tied into the education as a benefits movement in some ways, where you know employers are now starting to hang out the idea that you can get a college degree if you come work here to high school graduates, right? Yeah. Like don't yeah. go off to college. You can get your degree online here by being an employee. And it might not, you know, you're going to, you're going to start a job, you're going to make money and you can get your degree while working here. There's a lot of versions of this where I think the employer is going to become maybe in the driver's seat here in certain ways. Well, I, I agree with you. And I think if you look at one of the raging debates uh, in, in our world right now, which is a short-term Pell, right? Democrats, uh, or sort of Republicans have proposed uh, expanding Pell, uh, Pell grant eligibility to quote unquote, high quality short-term programs that provide some sort of credential. And that's really run up against Democrat, uh, Democratic suspicion of uh, unscrupulous for-profit uh, providers. I think there's common ground here, which is restricting funding to uh, training programs that are offered in conjunction with a qualified employer or industry right. group. So for example, Santa Monica College uh, offers a cloud computing certificate in partnership with Amazon World Services. And I think that if a for-profit 
provider, whatever it looks like, can convince Amazon or a, a comparable, credible industry partner that Pell, Pell funding should follow uh, that. And it's hard to see how anyone would be uh, would be against uh, against that. So I think those sorts those are sort of creative solutions that we need uh, to expand these uh, these alternative alternative pathways. Yeah, and I'm not sure if you had time to look at it. There was a, a flashing news update on Inside Higher Ed today about this uh, $4,000 skills credit that yeah, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. is being considered. Do you, have you have you been paying attention to that at all? Yeah, look, I mean, I, again, uh, you know, my first reaction was uh, including for apprenticeships. And and uh, my point on apprenticeships is you shouldn't be paying <laughs> to participate in an apprenticeship program. The whole point of an apprenticeship is you learn while you earn. Uh, so if someone is, 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 wants to charge you, uh, uh, tuition money to participate in an apprenticeship program, it's not, it's not an apprenticeship. It's not an apprenticeship program, but I go back to what I was saying before, yeah. which is, you know, the paradigm is just about how can we spend more on education and upskilling? And I, I don't think that's going to be enough, uh, anymore. I really think we need to focus on the intersection, uh, between the candidate and the employer mm -hmm. and particularly in this environment, uh, what it's going to take, uh, for employers, uh, to take uh, a risk. On unproven talent, uh, even before COVID, uh, we had 45% underemployment of new college grads. You know, right. you have employers who, for example, for entry-level sales positions, which for decades were, you know, the point of entry uh, for how many CEOs started as, you know, uh, uh, low-level salespeople in their organizations. Today, most of those positions ask for two years of Salesforce experience. I was right. speaking uh, to a, a group of college and university presidents and provosts. A year ago, and I asked them, I said, raise your hand if your, your university provides any training at all on Salesforce. And not one hand went up. So we've got a huge, huge problem, a uh, huge problem there. Right. Yeah, I, you know, the, one of the, um, you mentioned it earlier, the idea of, of college students getting a credential, a, a highly valued industry recognized credential earlier in their career. You know, that, that's something I'm a huge fan of. And, um, you know, it, it, it but what I'm frustrated by is we still have an either or mentality in higher ed, right? What I mean by that is it's like either the liberal arts or it's careerism or vocational training. And, you know, I've always been a fan of like trying to figure out the both end here, right? Which is, uh, you know, yeah, you can get a bachelor's degree and an industry recognized credential. Why not carve out the space to allow that in a bachelor's degree and or for the students that don't continue on to finish, they at least leave with some sort of valued industry credential, right? Because there's some pretty damning evidence that, you know, for dropouts, uh, you know, the, the value of college isn't some college, it's the full degree or nothing, right? And right. so you, we, we've got to figure out models like that. I'm curious, this is a question that kind of feeds into where I wanted to go. Uh, Amjad uh, Safarini, who- uh, oh, Hey, Amjad. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you know Amjad. Hey, yeah. Amjad, good to see you, man. Um, so yes, he said, Ryan, you wrote a book about unbundling higher ed many years ago. What's your impression update now that we're going through a precipitated version of it? So what what do you say to Amjad on that one? It's fascinating. Yeah, no, I never expected it to happen like this. But you know, the the, the, the for those who haven't read it, uh, which is most of you listening, uh, the um, based on the sales, uh, <laughs> uh, mo, mo, the um, uh, what we what I meant by unbundling was that the degree is essentially a bundle of you know 50 different services uh that you're that you're buying uh and is there a way to uh you know unbundle uh all of those services so you can sort of buy what you need wh when you need it uh and in, in, in my second book i talk about sort of the the further uh unbundling into uh these these faster and cheaper uh pathways uh that are uh, that are that are emerging 
there's no question that, uh, you know, in, in delivering, uh, the instruction uh, over the last uh, nine weeks, uh, but none of the uh, experience uh, the students are paying for. Uh, I think that uh, we've, we may have awoken a, a sleeping bear uh, here uh, in American uh, students and, and families uh, who recognize that this is, this is a bundle. We should be able to pay for what we, what we, what we want and, and not pay for what we, what we don't want. I mean, there are how many now dozens of lawsuits uh, out there? I, I don't, know really how to handicap uh, how likely they are to succeed, uh, these universities that uh, did not provide uh, the services that uh, students bargained for and, and yet continue to charge full, full tuition. Uh, this is one of the reasons why uh, you know, very few uh, uh, universities are likely to, uh, uh, at least initially, continue online uh, in the in the fall, uh, because they would be very very hard pressed to continue to charge full tuition. The only ones that will are going to be community colleges and uh, highly subsidized public uh, university systems like Cal State. Uh, but you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to do that at Penn, at the Penn State system, uh, where the average in state student uh, tuition is over fifteen thousand uh, dollars a year. Uh, they wouldn't get away with it. So they have to figure out how to how to how to make it work. Yeah, you're right. I mean, these lawsuits, whether, whether they uh, have any chance of being successful or not, you know, who knows, but they brought up the interesting question, right? Like, clearly, there's there's students and families who say they're willing to pay if it includes all the bells and whistles. And then when the bells and whistles aren't included, they go, wait a minute, I, I, I only want to pay this if I'm only going to get the education, right? So it's a really fascinating, uh, you know, experiment where people are in their own minds, unbundling the pieces and then putting value attributions to it, right? So right. I think, it's going to have, you know, lasting effects. This is not going to be, you know, short-term and temporary. Um, I'm curious too. Th these are some questions that are kind of related about various, you know, government and other models. Rachel Sumner asked a question about your thoughts on the UK apprenticeship funding model and its <laughs> applicability to the U.S. Uh, yeah. Just curious what your thoughts are on that, and you might want to explain a little bit uh, to folks who may be less aware. Yeah, no, the UK has actually done a nice job uh, of trying to expand apprenticeships beyond the traditional blue collar building and industrial trades into tech and professional services and healthcare. Uh, and they did uh, two things uh, that we uh, we haven't done uh, here, but not not a third thing that I think we, we all need to do. The two things they've done uh, is they've made the connection between uh, government or regulatory approval of the apprenticeship and funding of the training. We don't have that here. So if you become a registered apprenticeship, there's no, you know, you're not automatically being paid by the government for the for the cost of the training you're providing. Uh, in the UK, that 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 has happened. The other and more important thing is they've incentivized the creation of this whole set of intermediaries. Last last I looked, there were about 1,200 of them called apprenticeship service providers who are running around trying to create these apprenticeship uh, programs, and they're incentivized by the government to do it. Every apprentice they sign up, every employer they sign up, they get paid. By the uh, by the by the government, and that's essential because there aren't really employers uh, in America who are uh, sort of desperate to launch apprenticeship programs. It's a sort of a nice to it would be nice if we could do it, but we're really not going to spend a lot of time and resources on it. So to have a third party that sort of makes a turnkey and hides the wiring for the employer and for the apprentice and for the government funding source is really critical. We don't have either of those here. The the, uh, the UK is is paying for this, by the way, with uh, essentially a, a business tax they call the apprenticeship levy right. uh, that yep. we uh, we we don't have here. Uh, we don't have here, have here either. But what neither the UK nor the US has, has has figured out is that at the end of the day, when a apprenticeship service provider goes to a big employer and says, you know, we'll sort it all out for you, uh, but how many apprentices do you do you want? Uh, and uh, the employer will say, well, do I have to hire them? 
And the apprenticeship service provider will say, well, yeah, you have to hire them from day one. They're going to be your employees. And they'll say, well, then we'll take three. <laughs> so, so that's, that, that's, that's the issue. Um, uh, we, we think that is not going to be the end employer, but rather intermediaries uh, who will stand between uh, the apprentice and the ultimate employer. And they can be private sector or not-for-profit or public, but they're going to absorb the risk by serving as the employer of record for a period of time. And that's what I mentioned before about paying for placement and incentivizing, using public funds to incentivize those intermediaries. And today, you know, from the private sector side, and this is where we're focused as a firm, staffing companies, business services companies, they're well positioned to be intermediaries. And they have deep distribution relationships to hundreds or thousands of large employers but they just right. haven't thought of themselves as a vector for entry-level talent to those employers. We're convinced that in a decade, we're going to have millions of young people start their careers through these intermediaries. And that's what we're building. That's fascinating. And, you know, with the couple minutes we have left, you know, let's, uh, you know, I would just love to hear your thoughts in that context, right? Um, obviously you, you launched this fund uh, with that thesis long before this COVID disruption, right? Now, here we are, barreling towards 20% unemployment, uh, there's, there's a chance we might hit an all-time record uh, before it's over of 25% unemployment, right? We hit 249 in the Great Depression. Uh, you were already focused on the underemployment issue. Like, what, what, if anything, is now different? I mean, there's a lot different, but in the context of your thesis around this, right, does that just double down in your thesis, or are there some nuances to the fact that we've got this massive unemployment right now that that changed some of the things you're thinking no i just would double triple uh, uh down uh on it there's just no question we, we we need these pathways we need them now they need to be scaled uh and they really should uh you know again uh if the government's going to spend another you know a hundred billion dollars on education and uh training uh they should spend you know, I don't know, 20 billion, 30 billion of it uh, with experiments around incentivizing uh, employers to actually hire. I think that's key. You know, we, we, we coined the, the phrase hiring friction to connote the fact that employers pre-COVID were less likely than ever to hire a candidate for a role unless that candidate literally had done the same job before, which basically right. makes, makes entry-level employment into an oxymoron, right? Like right. you haven't done the job before by definition. So, uh, we, 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 need to, we need to reduce or eliminate the hiring friction uh, for employers. And we think that uh, having intermediaries serve as employers of record for a period of time, allowing uh, the end employer to essentially try the talent before they have to buy the talent uh, is the answer uh, here. And if you can subsidize the wages for a period of time and essentially make it cost-free to the employer, you're going to get millions back to work sooner uh, than, they, than we would otherwise. Well, I, I certainly... Uh... I hope that you are very successful in the context of, of that plan and idea because uh, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to need the help uh, to get new jobs. And of course, the big distance for a lot of them between where they are and that job is going to be some form of education, training, and experience, right? And how do you get that if you don't get them on a path like this? And, and frankly, get them on a faster path. You know, one of the problems with degrees, if we talk about the bachelor's degree, is it takes too long, right? And then on the flip side, ironically, it doesn't last long enough. And what I mean by that is once you get one, there's no expectation that you continually get upskilled or reskilled or are refreshed or made relevant. You have to go out and seek it in different ways, right? And so long story short, you know, I think uh, there's, uh, there's just a ton of opportunity for innovation out there. It was needed long before COVID and uh, it's certainly now desperately needed. So 
Um, thank you for your insights, Ryan, and also thank you for the, the mission that you've been able to carry out in, uh, in a number of ways. So thanks for taking the time to, to join us today. I'm sure folks would love for us to stay on longer, but, uh, but feel free to send us some additional questions in the comments and, uh, and Ryan and I will try and field those in the uh, discussion. So thank you very much, sir. It was great to have you on. Thank, thank you, Brandon. It's always, uh, always fun. And if folks are interested, they can follow me on uh, Twitter uh, at uh, Ryan Craig uh, AP. And uh, biweekly, I write something called The Gap Letter, and you can sign up at uh, gapletter.com. I love The Gap Letter, so I can, I can endorse that. But uh, thank you very much, and uh, thank you all for joining us today. I hope you have a great, uh, great Memorial Day weekend.